0: It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a
1: hard day's night. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Bonnie Hoskins, and I'm in London, England, with Mark Pringle. Hi, Bonnie. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Bonnie. Joining us from White Plains, New York, is the excellent Fred Goodman. Hi, Fred. Barney, wonderful to hear you and see you. <laughs> Fred has written for Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair and countless other publications and is the author of books such as The Magnificent Mansion on the Hill. We'll be hearing about his career and talking a lot about his latest book, Rock on Film, the movies that Rocked the big screen. First off, Fred, was there a moment in your young life that served as some sort of epiphany, a moment when you, you knew you were going to sell your soul to rock and roll?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then we can't, we can't really well, do this. It was great to talk to, to,
1: to, to you, Barney. <laughs> <yeah>, thank you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's the,
2: that's the test, right? Well, it, you know, like, relaxed. like so many, like so many of us, right? I, I was a guy who wanted to be a writer. I was working in a record store, you know, looking around, you know, how, how do you figure out how to write, you know, and not work in a record store. And, and, uh, I kind of put the two together. I had been living in upstate New York and I moved to New York and took a job at a record warehouse, you know, what they used to call a one-stop, which was a small distributor. And I was doing it just at the time when Rapper's Delight came out in New York, which was an extraordinary street phenomenon. I mean, we used to literally sell it by the skid full every day. It's this one small <laughs> place on 11th Avenue in Manhattan. It sold more than the top 20 albums we had, you know. And I noticed that there was nothing about rap music in the press, even, you know, places like New York Rocker or the Village Voice, for like another year. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, it was like incredible how far behind, you know, even the hip press was to what was happening on the streets. And that was kind of an interesting moment for me, having worked in these record stores and warehouses and stuff like that. I wound up getting a job at Cashbox, which was a music industry trade journal because I had retail experience, you know, and became their jazz columnist and that sort of thing. And one thing led to another, went from there to Billboard and then to Rolling Stone. And it kind of grew. Uh, And after a couple of years at Rolling Stone, I decided, well, you know, I might as well do something for myself. And Mansion on the Hill was the first part of that.
1: Before we get onto Mansion, before we enter the Mansion, I'm interested to ask whether you, because you've written so much about the music business and the history of the music business, you know, whether you're, you know, sensibility lent more that way. Did you feel any kinship with the famous American rock writers of the like mid to late 60s and then the 70s, or were you always more interested in the kind of business side of it?
2: Well, it's it's good. You know, it's funny because I started coming up with the trades, you were taught to write fast, you know, And, and it wasn't until I got to Rolling Stone that the idea that you could write good you know, was was kind of became a premium, right? I mean, before that, it was just fill the magazine. So that was a big turnaround, you know, to suddenly have the time to do that and to look at it that way. And that's really when I started going back. I mean, I was not, you know, somebody walking around, you know, with Charlie Gillett under my arm. It was later, you know, that you would find these guys and read them. And in fact, it took me until well into my career to start reading Beyond music criticism, you know, to go back and read film critics and, you know, literary yeah. critics and, you know, thinking about, well, what did this essayist do and, you know, what would Tom Wolfe approach this? And, you know, it's very much what's in front of you when you're trying to get going. Right. So it's only later that you start, at least in my case, that I got to get a perspective. And of course, Mansion on the Hill kind of gave me a chance to get back to that because so much of it was about, you know, the early days of music journalism, John Landau and some of these other guys, you know, the, the, the start of uh, Crawdaddy and these other publications. So I kind of worked backwards. A lot of it is self-invention. You know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's enter that mansion, the mansion on the hill. Let me turn around to get the, the, the subtitle accurately. Dylan, this is the American subtitle. I think it was slightly different here in the UK. Dylan Young, Geffen, Springsteen, and the head-on collision of rock and commerce. I always loved the fact that you got head-on collision (laughs) into a subtitle. But that is what it's about. And it was not that no one had ever written about the intersection, of kind of business, greed, and creativity before. But this was the first book that really made me wake up to – I suppose the kind of disingenuousness of a lot of a lot of rock and <laughs> roll, right? You know, we're here to save the world and be these kind of hippie freaks, but actually, we just kind of want to get rich and, and laid.
2: Well, you know, I, I mean, in my old age, I've I've come to you know embrace the line that you know my line is you know like the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. I'm doing this for money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's interesting because the other part was I really got interested in the business point of it. I mean, there is a certain—I wouldn't call it an art, but there's a skill to it. You know, you do get this realization that where there's a string of great albums, there's a great artist, and where there's a great career, there's usually a great manager. You know, there are so few people who can do both. You know, Mick Jagger can do both. You know, uh, yes. You know, Bob Dylan doesn't need a manager. You know. The list is not long, so we have these you know situations where you see careers that do or don't happen based on somebody that the public really has no idea about, you know. And that was one of the things that really drove my interest in Mansion on the Hill. And it started when I was working at the trades. You know, when I was at Cashbox, we talked to anybody. You know, there were three trades in America back then: Cashbox, Record World, and Billboard. You know, and there was a joke that if you wanted to describe the three magazines, the joke was, you know, if the record company sent a press release to those three places, they printed it at Record World just as they got it. They rewrote it at Cashbox and they put it in the garbage at Billboard. So, you know, <laughs> there was this sort of different identities. And we at Bill at Cashbox. We used to talk to everybody. So artists were constantly coming through the place, which was great. But somewhere after like, you know, a couple of months of this, you notice that there's always a guy in the back of the room leaning against the wall who has nothing to say. But when he does say something, he usually turns out to be the smartest guy in the room. And it's the manager. And I got very interested in what was going on in that. So that was sort of, you know, my epiphany on the, on the business piece of it.
3: What do you see as the role of of a great manager then, other than being the smartest guy in the room?
2: Well, it's, it's multiple things. I mean, you know, the most important thing, of course, is that you're facilitating the career, you know, and you're trying to protect it and grow it in all the ways it can. But you also have to be the bringer of reality to the artist, and you have to figure out a way to get them to get acclimated to the world. You know, I've gotten to know Irving Azoff pretty well over the years, and he, of course... He's a very successful American manager. People who don't know me manage the Eagles forever. But he's also managed dozens of other acts, and his son now manages Harry Styles. So Hmm. it's a sort of incredible empire. And Irving's thing is, you know, he says the first thing he says to a new client is, it's called the music business. If you don't (laughs) take care of business, you're not going to get to make any music. Yeah. You know, and, and that's sort of the burger of reality
1: piece of it. Yes, yes.
2: Mark, can you remember, I mean,
1: we met probably around the time that The Mansion on the Hill was published. Yeah, that's so right. I, I, and I know you, you revere the book highly. Can you remember how you came to read it? Because uh, you have this American edition, and you can't remember where you bought it. I can't answer any of these questions, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know... You 19- know you have it and you na- know you've read it.
4: 1997's <laughs> a long time ago. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I loved it. I mean, it told me a lot that I didn't know, though broadly it didn't tell me anything I didn't know. That you know, mm. I was aware of the power of the, the managers and so on and so forth. It was absolutely fascinating. I mean, the way that, that Geffen Roberts sort of built their empire and David Geffen went on to kind of create a bigger empire. John Landau has... I mean, a journalist basically taking over the management of, of Bruce Springsteen, with a great deal of difficulties surrounding that, because Mike Apple was Bruce Springsteen's previous manager. Is that That's correct? correct. Yeah, and as the the, the the shenanigans that sort of surround that can kind of, you know continue to be fascinating, but I just think it's important these things are written about that actually that too many people romanticize the music business and um, being musician, and it's pretty good to get a sort of cold shower of the nuts and bolts of.
2: Well, I'm I'm glad you put it that way, you know, because I, I must tell you, I mean, as somebody who's read God knows how many <laughs> music books, you know, <laughs> I, I, you, there, there's for me this whole problem of this sort of romantic notion of it that, mm-hmm. you know, so many of these stories are heroic journeys that probably never happened. <laughs> you know, yes. is, is how I feel about so many of the books that are put out there. And, you know it's it's a bit of self flattery, but I like to say that I write books for adults, yes yeah yeah
1: um. when the book I reviewed the book for mojo Fred and interviewed you when it came out and there were there was like it was a like mojo kind of three questions following the review and You said, to me, the depressing part is just the notion that the critical currency gets misspent so frequently. There isn't enough serious talking about the subject, and there aren't enough places that will allow you to talk about it seriously. In this country, at least, the rock press has been so badly eclipsed by video, by the fact you can read record reviews in every newspaper and magazine in the country, blah, blah, blah. Usually, the view is all Steinbeck and leather. That's the image everyone wants to present. And if you don't present that, you're in for a bit of a fight. I love that. Steinbeck and leather. That's a great title for for a Bruce Springsteen album. Very funny. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it sort of dispels a lot of the romantic bullshit around rock and roll. While, you know, you also, it's not like you're saying there's no great Music out there no, it's all been a all. complete hoax or a con i mean that's that's not the point at all. A lot of these people are extraordinary, and I mean Dylan and Young are in your subtitle and um is there any reason you particularly picked them? Is that because of the Albert Grossman chapter and because of the you know, like geffen how how much there is on Geffen in there?
2: well, you know, I was fascinated by the landau springsteen relationship i mean I, I've never spoken to Bruce Springsteen, you know, but I knew John Landau right. And I had a perspective on it because of that, that I felt a lot of people didn't have. I mean, I, you know, I read so many Bruce Springsteen interviews and there were moments when I thought, this guy sounds like John Landau, you know, (laughs) 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 and I'm not knocking it because, you know, you you have conversations and you develop and people help you formulate your ideas. John was his producer, you know, and, and his sort of sounding board and his advocate and all these things, you know, and had a huge impact on him. So that was really the core of it, was that. And then I went, started looking back, and I felt that Albert Grossman, you know, who's somebody you've obviously written about so much, Marty, is that he was sort of the guy who modernized it. Yeah. I mean, he's taking these people on their merits, you know, and and saying, these are artists who deserve to be treated like artists. You know, who were you to decide what the Peter Paul and Mary album cover should look like? Who are you to decide what Bob Dylan's going to record? You know nothing. They know everything. Forget it. You know, and and this, of course, is radical, you know, at at that point. I mean, Brian Epstein didn't think that way.
1: Right. No, 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 precisely. It's funny that just a few days ago, as I was starting to think about this episode and talking to you, I was reading a long Q&A with John Sinclair and... And I look back at my review of The Managed on the Hill and it says something like one of the few people to come out of this book with any real credit is John Sinclair, you know, the manager of the, of the MC5. And in this Q&A, he's asked about back in the USA and he's, he's just, he just really dismisses it, you know. <laughs> um, I, I don't know whether he, I can't remember if he slags Lando off, but as far as he's concerned, it's a betrayal of what the MC5 had been, which is a sort of truly radical force on "Kick Out the Jams." And it's this Boston rock critic coming in and getting them to record like three-minute covers of like "Back in the USA," obviously by Chuck yeah. Berry. And it's yeah. very, it's, it's almost like this sort of garage teen rock album, isn't it? It's so different. Anyway, it
2: it amused me. It's completely different. I mean, you know, look, it yeah, it, you know, John Sinclair has a vision. You know, John Lando has a different vision. You know, the MC Five are trying to figure out what to do. I mean, I think ironically, their best record is the one they made after they got done with both of them. The high time, oh, you're like high time. You're <laughs> a high time fan. <laughs> I, I think that's a fan. I think that's the MC Five as Sister they were Anne. meant to be. You yeah. know, I, I mean, they finally walked it like they talked it. You know, um, <laughs> that's so, so I really loved it. But you know, John had a good take on them. I mean, you know, he saw them at the Grandy Ballroom, you know, in in Detroit. You know, and he described them as the greatest 15 minutes in rock and roll, <laughs> you, you know, which is it's like an explosion. And then what? Yeah. You know, so I think back in the USA is is an effort to, you know, do and then what? But there's something reductive to it that's not necessarily, I think, what the MC5 had in mind. And it's certainly not what John Sinclair was interested in, <laughs> you know, so so that's kind of an interesting take at in it. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, John takes great credit for that stuff. I mean, he had once said to me in a conversation, back in the USA, kind of sounds like born in the USA, doesn't it?
5: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: You've written more wonderful books. I think when I met you a few years—well, ago, well, God, almost ten years ago—you were you were already at work on your Alan Klein yeah. book, which was fascinating, and you had written a book about Warner Brothers. You'd written a book about the Edgar Bronfman era, Fortune's Fool, that came out in twenty ten. More recently, the book before Rock on Film was a book in the series Why You know XXX Matters about the Mexican American singer Lasa de Sala.
2: Tell us how you came to write that. Well, you know, it's really it's a really kind of a tragic story. I mean, I was listening to WBAI, the radio station in New York, one day, and you know, they introduced a record by saying, Here's Lasa De Sala who died New Year's Day. And, you know, I heard this record anywhere on this road that I thought was one of the greatest records I'd ever heard. And yeah. I thought, well, this person just died and I never heard of them. Mm-hmm, uh, and sure. it sent me off on this quest to find out who she was. And who she was turned out to have been, as you say, you know, a woman who was born, uh, had a hippie birth near Woodstock, New York. Her parents were hippies and she was brought up in a school bus going back and forth between Mexico and, and the States, her mother was American, her dad was Mexican, and she had a bunch of sisters who became circus performers. They, you know, all homeschooled, no TV, no television. I mean, the whole, you know, thing, right? Living in, you know, all kinds of crazy setups. Sounds like sort of Ricky Lee Jones's story in parallel. Well, parallels. you know, I mean, <laughs> this this is just kind of like, you know, it's mind-boggling. I mean, they, yeah. they, they were in a Dorothy Day community, you know, the Catholic Workers' Farm, it was all kinds of stuff. And she wound up in Montreal because her sisters went to the circus school there and became a cabaret singer singing in Spanish, which is wild because yeah. of course they speak French in Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> <Quite>. <laughs> um, and she became a real sensation. I mean, she wound up becoming very well known and a, you know, gold record selling artist in Canada, went on to similar results in France and parts of Europe, was very big on the sort of world music service. You know, I mentioned Charlie Gillett. Charlie Gillett was one of her great advocates. You know, used to put him on the BBC World Music Program, have her on and this kind of thing. But she never cracked in the States. I mean, she made three great records, one all in Spanish, one in Spanish, French, and English, and the last one when she was trying to establish herself in the U.S. in English. But she wound up getting breast cancer in her mid-30s. And she Aww. died when she was 37, you know, just after this record came out. She was a wonderful, and a, amazing artist. And I wrote this book basically because I was trying to get America, you know, to give her a <laughs> listen. Yeah. And I, I feel very yeah. passionate about it. I would recommend her, you know, to, to really anybody to check out De Decella.
3: We listened to her yesterday in in the office together. And I, we all, I think, kind of Responded. Up and just thought, you know, this really beautiful voice, really kind of sense, kind of directness to the whole thing, which I thought was really moving.
2: Yeah, she had a real romantic take on life, a very unusual woman. She's really like nobody else. You know, so so I, I would recommend it, and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about her. I, uh, you know, she, she was sort of something that was in my mind to do for years, you know, and then when Stephen was starting this series, uh, the Why Music Matters series, he came to me and asked me to do one, and I said, well, would you let me write about somebody you've never heard of? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he said, and he well, said, yes. tell me more. You know, and and and, you know, he he went for it. So I'm grateful.
1: Well, on the basis of what you've just told us, I think I would have said go ahead myself. Actually, you know, it certainly makes me want to read it, and I will do that.
2: Yeah, Mm. she's a fascinating, a naive musician. You know, she she couldn't read or write music. I mean, there are clips of her playing piano with two fingers, but the stuff's incredible. I mean, you know, she just has this sort of naive musician's ability to hear things in a way that few people do.
1: Let's talk about your new book, Rock on Film, Fred, which is... I mean, just, just to kind of reduce it to the bare facts, it's, it's about 50 essential films. Well, about 100, because you managed to get these double features. Double feature. So, size, yes, that's clever. Yeah. <laughs> that's cleverly done. I like that, that device. Um, but it's also interspersed with uh, some q and A, some interviews with, well, Cameron Crowe and Jim Jarmusch, Penelope Spheris, who we're hoping to have on the podcast next month. It's just a wonderful celebration of all sorts of very different kind of music films, yeah. I suppose maybe a good first question would be, you know, you could have written a probably book about 2,000 music films. Yeah. What was your process of inclusion and elimination? And tell us about some of the films.
2: Well, you know, the first thing I, I'd just like to add is that, you know, it struck me that nobody has done a book like this in over 30 years. I and mean, the last one that I know of, you know, was Marshall Crenshaw.
1: Marshall Crenshaw. Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: that was a long time ago. Yeah. You know, uh, and a lot of movies have been made since then, yeah. you know, yes. some of them quite good, you know. So yes. I felt like, OK, it was there to be done and it should be done. So I took it on. And, and as far as the 50 format, you know, I we have a American uh, cable operation Turner Classic Movies here, which I did it as part of their imprint. They, they do a book series and I looked a little at their format. I, I went my own way. I just thought 50 was a good number. You know, I was reminded from my years at Rolling Stone, we used to do these special issues, you know, the 100 Greatest Albums of the 90s, you know, 500 You, you, co-ed- you
1: co-edited one of those, didn't you? Yeah, you co-edited yeah. the, the 80s volume. The one of the thing.
2: 80s yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I remember doing those essays and I thought, well, why don't I just follow that format, you know, and if I put in the sidebars for a double feature, it gives me a chance to, you know, write short pieces and get the number up. So it's a matter of mixing in my mind the essentials, and things that you think are underappreciated that, you know, maybe should get out there. And I viewed it as that there were basically, you know, three types of films. You know, there's the sort of original fictional, you know, Hard Day's Night kind of thing, and that spawns this. And then you get the documentaries. And then, to me, the Adam and Eve of it is Don't Look Back on a Hard Day's Night. You know, everything before that is just kind of floundering around, you know. I think Mm -hmm. the genre really comes into its own when those two films come along. And everything is essentially descended from that, those two films. That's why I say they're Adam and Eve, with this sort of third bastard child, you know, the biopic. Yeah. (laughs) Which existed before rock and roll movies, you know, the Glenn Miller story or the Benny Goodman
3: story. Isn't there also the fourth category of the musical? Because there are a few musicals in the book. Yeah,
2: there are a few musicals. That's true. Although I always think of them as part of that original, you know, scripting. Process,
3: you know. Mm, yeah, sure. But kind of like, sort of like, you know, modern opera in some in some respects. <laughs> Storytelling through music rather than, you know, it's a play that has the exposition is done via music.
2: Yeah, I, I must confess that that's sort of my least favorite of all of these. But you chose some to include. Oh, well, I mean, sure. What, what, like, how do you not do Rocky Horror? You know. For <laughs>
3: <example>? <laughs> yes, I love. I mean, I love Rocky Horror. I was really pleased to see that in there. It's such a phenomenon of of pop culture was that a kind of criterion is that that you know that pop culture had to factor in and that, i mean oh, you know, a- absolutely to curate because that.
2: There, yeah you know there are some films in here that's like look i'm not going to sit you know personally i don't want to sit down and watch rock and roll high school but there are people who <laughs> love it right and you know why can't they love it you know there's no reason not to so yeah you try and do a big ted piece of it and then you know point out things you know there are films in here like you know Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, you know, or the film on Ian Dury, "Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll," which I think are really ex- exceptionally good films that very few people know about. Yeah, I confess I haven't seen
1: either of those. Oh, no, you, you would
2: love both those films.
1: I, I, I think I, I think I would, but it made me. I mean, looking through the book, I, I kind of figured I've probably seen about half of these, but why haven't I seen that one? And why haven't I seen that one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's a strange thing, but you don't sometimes go out of your way to see a rock film and maybe mainly because i think so many of them have been terrible over the years there's so many terrible documentaries so many terrible biopics yeah. that you don't like oh i must go and see the new queen biopic right. i did eventually see it just on the basis that it, it was so successful I right. thought, well i better better see why you know but yeah so maybe i mean at a mark i mean how many of these did you feel you had seen oh i mean roughly. It, it was, about a half, about,
4: yeah. yes, and that's that sort of territory. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the first one that I saw when it came out was Hard Day's Night. i have been eight yes. years old, nine mm-hmm. years old, yeah, and too. I still I love it today. I think it's an astonishing movie, and put it in particularly strong relief because their next movie was the appalling Hell, Hell, yeah, which which is just just shit, yeah. You know, yeah. Not well, too I, I totally
2: agree. I mean, you know, this is one of the great things when you do these essays, you get to write about. I mean, really, you know. It's so funny because A Hard Day's Night is made under incredible duress.
4: Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole
2: thing is done in 90 days. You know, yeah. and when I say 90 days, I mean started day one in the theater 90 days later. Right. You know? and, and it's, you know, because That's no one so knows so if good. the Beatles, yeah. If, yeah. are the Beatles still going to be popular in three months?
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I yeah, mean, the yeah.
2: world was so different then. And, of course, it's fascinating to see that it's such a great film. And, yes, you know, help is just a throwaway. You know, yes. it's it it's just the only moment of unadulterated magic, you know, yeah. in their film yeah. career. And it's yeah. it's,
4: it, it's it is about them as a band. That's what frames it entirely. Helps something else. It's like let's have this band play parts in this other movie, you know. But but Hard Day's Night is absolutely about them being a band, about their relationship with their audience at that particular moment in time. All of that sort of stuff. It's also beautifully shot. It's it's fantastically well edited it just yeah. moves yeah. it just grooves along you know
2: by the way the the editing job is is bravuro i mean yeah the guy who did i can't. i'm not remembering his name he had prior to hard days that Day, he had just cut zulu right oh, right and, <laughs> and, and, and it's like very similar film but you know because they <laughs> are on this tight budget to get the film done there's no chance to it's you you don't have a rough edit everything's the sure. final edit
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah.
2: They, they shot, you know, that climactic concert performance, right, in like two days, and yeah, yeah. there's six cameras: three on the audience, three on the Beatles, and every cut you are making is the final cut.
4: Right. Yeah.
3: It's amazing. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Jasper, what did you think of it?
3: Yeah, because I watched it for the first time ever this week. Uh, it's sort of in preparation to. <laughs> just I thought I I thought I ought to have seen it. And I really enjoyed it as a historical document, a really fun, interesting moment in time. And Mark, you said it's about them as a band. I'd go a step further and say it's about them as a boy band. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, what What you're saying about their relationship with their audience, it is all in that, you know, the climactic mm-hmm. end scene where the shots of the the audience and they're like, at alternate turns crying and screaming yeah. and all of this, you know, it really gets people talk about the hysteria surrounding the beatles but a hard day's night just makes it come alive again mm-hmm. in a way that's that's very honest and very authentic you know even though you know that they're kind of it's not True documentary. It's no. it's a film. They're they're yeah. making it up. The characters are characters. You know the grandfather. It's you yeah. know it's funny in that sense. It's comedic in
4: that sense. Yes. But there's a grain of truth to it. I mean, one thing I will say is, I mean, in my job here at Rocks Back Pages, I've read a lot of Beatles interviews from exactly around that time, and it's them. You know, yeah. to whatever degree it's scripted or otherwise, the fact is. Those personalities are the same people who Maureen Cleves interviews for the Evening Standard in 1964, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of that, you know, when she follows them to America, when their first visit to America, the way in which they talk, the way in which they converse with one another, it's in that film. It's actually, it is the Beatles at that moment.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, what they did was they sent a journalist on a brief trip a couple of dates through France.
4: Right. You know,
2: who followed them and got a sense of who they were. And mm-hmm. wrote it that way. And then Richard Lester allowed a great deal of you know improvisation and yeah. latitude. That yeah. helps. And you know, I agree, there are like scenes that stick in your mind. I mean, aside from the sit-up scene in the baggage car with Patty Boyd, you know, which <laughs> is just so good. Right. My favorite in the film is is the backstair scene with John Lennon and the chorus girl. You know, because <laughs> it's like it's John Lennon. I mean, yeah. this little put on riff that he's doing. Everything that he's going to do for the rest of his career is, is essentially right there. And it, it just feels great. Yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. 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 Two things just I want to insert here. One is that the homepage this week, because of you Fred is, is essentially a kind of cinematic special and the centerpiece of the, of the, of the free feature is an audio interview that our dear friend Matt Snow did with Richard Lester in 2004, where Obviously, he talks about Hard Day's Night, he talks about the Beatles and, 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 and help to to some extent. And I listened to it a couple of days ago and it's just delightful. What a lovely man he was. This, this American in London just thoroughly... Kind of good egg, really, Richard Lester, um, and must take a lot of credit for that wonderful film. That wonderful film. Yeah, I also. Uh, the like other, the egg- other thing, just to mention, I just <laughs> want to get this <laughs> in. That I told just yesterday um, <laughs> yeah. in the very. So the first thing you say about the film is you talk about the famous, uh, you know, scene in the in the uh, in the railway car in the train carriage, and um, the the, the bowler hatted businessman comes in. That bowler hatted businessman was my uncle. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's fantastic Uh, the late richard vernon not my blood uncle but my aunts on my father's sister's husband richard vernon so for me seeing that movie as a kid and just like oh my god richard's in a train with the beatles (laughs) Uh, he's he's been anointed so that was an amazing moment To interrupt you there, Fred, but I just had to get that little nugget in. Can That's you remember what you were about to say?
2: Well, I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned Richard Lester. I'd also like to make a little shout-out to uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, you uh-huh. know, who was nice enough to write a forward to the book for me, you know, who, of course, you know, worked on Let It Be and uh, Rolling Stones, Rock and Roll Circus, and is a gentleman.
4: It's funny, because actually, one of the articles I was going to talk about later on, but I'll talk about it now is Maureen Cleave meeting Michael Lindsay Hogg, uh, writing up for the Evening Standard in 1965, when he was the Ready, Steady, Go director. And it's very funny. He arrived in Oxford with a large number of what were then considered very outre, pink shirts, and the reputation for being (laughs) the illegitimate son of somebody fearfully glamorous, who, of course, is Orson Welles. I mean, because, again, he's an American in London. It's the same sort of, you know, Richard Lester, Michael Lindsay Hogg, it it was very much the same sort of thing. He says he thinks London is the most exciting place in the world. It allows a kind of flowering of the personality, he said. I think the pop singers are very brave, very daring, What they really have is a kind of public joie de vivre. So that's a a, a nice Lindsay Hogg edition.
1: I love the fact that in his introduction to your book, Fred, he he talks about about Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg, who, of course, is the chairman (laughs) of the the record company in Spinal Tap. We also have have a piece about Spinal Tap. When I was at NME in 1984, Cynthia Rose, another American um, who was on staff at NME in London, was the first person to talk to me about Spinal Tap and this film, which was about to come out. And she said, it really is absolutely hysterical. So we all went off to see the premiere and it was hysterical. It still is hysterical. I remember Neil Tennant sitting, of the Patch Up Boys sitting in the row in front of me, uh, just convulsed with hysterical laughter. I, I, I mean, do you, the only person I know uh, with, with predictable perversity, who doesn't think it's funny, of course, is John Mendelsohn, who thinks that only he is funny. <laughs> but I don't know anyone else who can sit straight face through a spinal tap. I mean, I'm assuming you, I think you kind of say, that it really just gets it so accurate. It does.
2: But you, you know there's a certain perversity to the people who do what we do you know yes. i mean yes. I, and, yeah. and, and we, we like and dislike things for very obscure reasons yeah not whether you we not going whether we actually like them or not you know my, my my good friend ira robbins you know uh, when i told him i was doing frank as one of the films in the book you know told me he saw it in london and walked out well why <laughs> Be, because the original comedian who played the frank winterbottom character was someone Ira was a huge fan of, you know, and this goes in another direction and it just wasn't connecting to him. So, you know, it's just kind of like funny. There is such a thing as knowing too much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There (laughs) is. There really is. There really is. So we're going to move on to Don't Look Back, which you identify as the sort of second, when you talk Adam and Eve, the second like prototype for music films that have been made subsequently. I think, you, yes, documentaries on significant artists, scenes and events. And there are a number of those in your book. Uh, everything from, you know, Penelope Spheres' decline of Western civilization to the Metallica film. And yeah, I think you've put some really good ones in there. Don't look back is the, is the daddy, isn't it? And I just, so just to read what you, I think, say so very, very observantly in, in your chapter on don't look back this is the revolution that's at the heart of don't look back a portrait of a rock performer that stands back observing and sometimes skeptical and not selling anything that was pretty radical for the time and as you say there's not there's not even that much concert footage in it tell tell us just for any listener who's not seen of it or isn't not seen it or is aware of it tell us about don't look back and don panabaker
2: Well, you know, Bob Dylan did a brief tour of England. It's only like seven or eight dates, you know, uh, in 1964. Albert Grossman, whom we were talking about before, Dylan's manager, thought it might be a good idea to get some footage, maybe for a promotional clip or something from, didn't know what, but hired Pennebaker, who was known as an American documentarian. And Pennebaker had gotten very good at developing his own method of making films that really didn't require much of a crew. You needed a camera operator, someone with a light, and someone with a microphone, and that was it. And he tried to make himself small and blend in as much as he could and kind of, you know, pretend I'm not here, let life go on kind of thing. And whether that happens or not, it's certainly very interesting because you don't really know, is that successful? Is this, are we really seeing Bob Dylan with his hair down or are we seeing Bob Dylan looking at D.A. Pennebaker and going, why is this guy filming me? You know, so <laughs> yes. what, what are we seeing here becomes yeah. really the central question of don't look back. And all the action, all the action happens behind the scenes. There, there is not a single full concert performance. There's, I, I say in the in the piece that it's more like a time-marking thing where, oh, now we're in Leeds and now we're in Manchester and now we're in London. You know, they show you just enough clip to know it's another night in another city. What you yeah. see is the hotels, the cars, the railroad rides, you know backstage, it's sort of you know what's happening behind the scene. So it's a very different take than something like a hard day's night obviously yeah. or you know what we had thought of as you know this is you know, this is Elvis or whatever you know documentaries yes. will later come that show you the or your brothers are you know brothers the Bruce Springsteen brothers but, or whatever it is. I mean it's not selling something. And no, and by no, the way, no. you know, D- Dylan then of course turned around and hired Pennebaker, you know, to, to make another one that was never completed, the Eat the Document uh, documentary. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. You know, we get to see later on in the Scorsese films.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Should we turn this over to the
1: week's audio, Mark?
4: Yeah, sure sure. Absolutely. It's it's you talking to Pennebaker in twenty fourteen. It's substantially about the back we can listen to the first clip. It's um about Albert Grossman first asking Pennebaker to make a movie about Bob Dylan. Let's have a listen to this.
0: I think, basically, it wasn't his choice. I think it was Albert's. And I think that Albert was looking for somebody who had uh, done some kind of filmmaking,
5: Mm -hmm.
0: which I had done, uh, with time in life, yeah. I so he was looking for somebody who could get him into that world because I think what he had in mind was selling Dylan to uh, uh, Warner Brothers. Yes, yes. So I was just a step. I didn't. He didn't think that we were going to make a, a film particularly, uh, but I was going to shoot some stuff with Dylan, and Dylan would get used to being shot in that style. Oh, I see. Oh, and, I see. Uh, and and how much he knew about. The time-life stuff, I don't know. Okay. And we didn't even ever talk much about it. He just came and said, would you like to make a film with my client, Bob?
4: That's really interesting, because it, it really just... That they didn't know what the film was for. The film wasn't a film as such. It was just go ahead and shoot stuff. And then he the, the, he talks quite extensively about the struggles of getting any distribution. That most people weren't interested. And he talks extensively about Albert and Sally Grossman, though I think at one point he's confusing Sally Grossman with Sarah Lowndes, Dylan's wife. But all of that's quite interesting. All these different relationships. Who was helping out? Who was involved in this, that, and the other? We just another clip. He talks about meeting Bob Newworth and Dylan. Uh, let's have a listen to this.
0: On oh, Don't Look Back. When I, met the, no, when I met the two of them down in the village at a bar. kettle of fish or something like that. No, it wasn't, it wasn't okay. the kettle of fish. It was the one on the, oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the, uh, it's gone now. Mm. It's gone now, but it was the place where I knew because all the painters hung out there. Okay. Uh, and where Karawak and all those people the would beat, go there honest, and hang out generation. with the painters.
5: Yeah.
0: Uh, and it was a, it was a very well-known <laughs> bar and we met for, in the middle of the day after lunch, without anybody there at the time, and uh, North was with him, and uh, we talked, and that was when uh, Bob came up with the idea of of the cards, yep. which I told him was terrific, yep. and then we bring a whole lot of laundry, and cardboard's with us, yes, which we did, we yes, had about a hundred of them, yes. uh, But I, in the course of making the film, I could see very early on that North unlike most people who just thought what i was making was just home movies right he saw what i was up to right and he knew right away how it worked and how to help it work and he was interested in it because i think he was interested in making films himself right he was a painter he just yes. paint, but he, he he couldn't make a career out of painting it mm-hmm. was impossible yeah there were too many giants yes. circling you so the idea of making a film that was kind of like this which was uh, what we were doing we were doing things that we weren't thinking about we were first of all getting rid of the narrator (laughs)
4: He is <laughs> yes, getting rid of the narrator. That's, that's the key point there. It's, I mean, it, it, you know, throughout the scenes, it's very interesting. He talks about learning to shoot with sound, which was kind of a new process for him. He talks extensively about Dylan's post accident life in Woodstock, which is pretty interesting. He talks about the 66 tour film, which he call, they call the color movie, the one that never sort of came out, though I think we've all seen
1: bits of it. Yeah. Bits of
4: it. I, so I, I wish I could see more of that because the, the live footage is. Absolutely, amazingly well shot. It's fantastic. He talks about, and he talks about the band. He, he, he talks about Robbie Robertson criticizing him for the way he shot Otis Redding at Monterey, which is just brilliant. I mean, it's you know one of the highlights of that movie. And Robbie Robertson picking holes in the way in which he had edited it and shot it. And he talks about playing Billie Holiday to Janis Joplin, which is very
1: sweet. Sort of coda to this. It's 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 it's, it's very it's interesting stuff. He was a lovely man, I have to say. I had interviewed him in nineteen ninety-one and when I did this interview, which is twenty fourteen, quite a l- lot later, it was on that same trip I came to visit you, Fred. Uh, so I was, you know, researching the book Small Town Talks. So I was I was asking Don Panabaker a lot about Albert. One of the things he said that just really sticks in my mind was that, you know, when the film was finished, the final edit, and he looked at it and he kind of realized how how sort of badly Albert came out of it. And he went to Albert and said, look, you know, you don't come out of this very well. Are you sure you're okay with, with, with that? You know, you're a bit of an ogre in it. And Albert said, I'm really comfortable with that. <laughs> It just Uh, just says everything about Albert Grossman, right? Um, (laughs) um, And tallies with your fabulous chapter in Mansion on the Hill, which is like a cumulus nimbus. Is that that the title of that chapter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, The great Cloud. It's it's, uh, it's one of the first long pieces I read about about Albert Grossman. um, What an enigmatic kind of just sort of strange character Albert was. Peter
4: Baker talks and... This interview about possibly one of the last people to talk to Grossman before he got on the plate on which he died. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That that,
1: that was an interesting detail. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and it's interesting to hear him talk about New Earth. And I mean, you know, I don't know if you ever met or did you interview New Earth Fred at all or encounter? I have
2: a good story about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I I spent a better part of an hour and a half in a little mexican breakfast place in austin texas trying to talk bob neworth into giving me an interview yeah <laughs> to, to not much avail like no to not much avail mm. you know it was really omerta you know was was sort of the deal with the people around Dylan at that point and um and and bob was very private and you know he never wanted to write his memoirs and you know to this day his his partner you know Paula doesn't encourage anybody to write about Bob, you know, but I must say you know i was I was very pleased some years later to to run into Bob, you know after Mansion on the hill came out, and he told me that i you know he thought I got it right oh. which was very nice, yeah you know? that is nice meant a lot you know, but yes, you know he and and he he nicely came to hear me speak when my alan klein book came out i mean he was you know he was a good guy, he just was very low key. You know, it was I, I. You know, in, in the Rock on film book, I describe him as a hipster of all trades. You know, which is really <laughs> you know oh, how dear. I think of Bob.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. sure, yeah. I mean, in a way, that film sort of begs a question, which is, you know, Dylan was obviously brilliant from from the get go. Would his story have been different in any meaningful sense without a Albert Grossman and B Bob Newarth, I think they were both. You know, huge influences on on him in their yeah. different ways. Would you agree?
2: I would. I mean, you know, and they're there at about the same period of time. You know, well, you and I know a fellow who put out a lovely book, Michael Friedman. Yes. Just to Shout put out, out his to book Michael Exposure.
1: Freedom. Wonderful yeah. book.
2: Yeah. It was beautiful. You know, he had been one of Albert's associates. He had managed Todd Rundgren and came in and worked with the band and, you know, New Janice and he has great Bob Newworth stories in there. You know, but Bob was really sort of Bob Newworth and Bob Dylan. You know, it's it's a different thing. I mean, he talks a little bit about, you know, that Bob was kind of a sweet guy, Dylan, when you first met him, you know, and then after he and Newworth are hanging around, he's not so sweet anymore. And, you know, <laughs> uh, and and you, I assume, knew Myra Friedman too. The publicist. I never
1: met Myra. I, I remember now, reading Myra. You know, much, she yeah. was
2: very, very close to Janice and wrote a. Buried Alive, you know, the first really good Janice biography. Yeah. And, you know, she said to me, Oh, you know, Bob has really cleaned himself up. Bob, you know, he stopped drinking and he's a lovely guy. He goes, But they were mean. Hmm. You know, Bob was a nasty drunk. They were mean guys.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you see that and don't look back. You see it. Yeah. All the way through. There's a lot, you know,
2: even. Right, there's the thing, you know, the the sort of two-facedness of it, which is, you know, when Donovan comes up, you know, and asks him to play It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and he does, and he's polite to him, but when he's not around, there's all this sniggering about that guy Donovan.
4: I should say quite rightly so. I'd have sniggered (laughs) about
2: that guy, Donovan, too. You know, I think those records are really underrated, man. I think those (laughs) records have stood the test of time.
1: As we often say (laughs) in this podcast, that's another episode.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, sorry, Fred. Go ahead. That's fine. But, you you know, I just think it was another time and there was a lot on them. And, you know, how well these guys were equipped to deal with what was going on. Who the hell knows? And, of course, you know, Albert had a certain influence, too, about being mysterious and being distant and keeping the world at arm's length. And, you know, and all of which Dylan, when he speaks about it, denies. In Chronicles, he basically talks like Albert Grossman. He didn't really affect me much, you know. He's (laughs) just the guy, you know. Yeah,
3: (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Your
2: book, okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Joan Baez comes out really nicely in Don't Look Back, I think. You kind of wonder why she's hanging around with all these assholes, but, uh Yeah, being,
1: being <laughs> treated horribly by... Well, yeah. Yeah. you know, the,
2: apparently the story is, you know, they had toured together in the United States, Bob and, and Joan, just prior to that tour, and she, I think, invited herself on this tour. She did. A, <laughs> I think that's you know, true. And, and I think expected to be invited out on stage to perform with him as she had been in the States and wasn't. And no one really knows what to say. You know, yeah. it really seems, you know, I don't know where the sort of fault of like, what's Joan doing here is all about. But, you know, I, I think it was unexpected and, and undefined. One thing you have
1: mm. to say about Bob Dylan, he wasn't a people pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting That's it. That's one way of putting it. There's so many films we could talk about. We, we just don't have time. I just want to mention The harder They Come. Extraordinary film. Mm. So Wayne Robbins's review for Cream of that movie is also included on the homepage for free this week, and it's it's a great piece, a very 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 positive piece about Perry Hansel's film. There's also James Med a piece about some kind of monster, the extraordinary Metallica film from 2004, which you Fred describe as perhaps the only indispensable rock documentary since Gimme Shelter. Which is,
2: is wow. that's quite a bold statement. <laughs> would you stand by that? Probably. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, there are others I like, you know. Yes. I, I really like the Nationals, you know, Mistaken for Strangers. It's a wonderful film also. And I write a little bit about the Wilco film. Yes. Uh, and the Mavis Staples film. I mean, there were, there were films we're seeing. But yeah, you know, that Metallica film is really, it's a bold film. It <laughs> you know, uh, and, and completely unexpected. I think, you, you, yes. you know, you really are inside that in ways that I don't think anybody expected it would be. And God, I do love, you know, the whole sequence where they're auditioning and hiring their basses. Base yes. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: Incredible. It is incredible. There's a great quote from Penelope Spheris, who you interview for the book. And she says, she says basically people that make movies generally do not understand music or the music business. So it's always a bit of a miracle when a, when a great film comes, it is made about, about rock right. and, and roll. You, you, know, you can
2: see, you can see the proof of that in 20 feet from startup, right? Which has its right. producer is Gil Friesen who ran A&M records. Yeah. So here's a guy who really understands the music is in yes. charge of a film knows exactly you know what to get in the film right so she she hit that on the head
3: is that because like music in films tends to be in service of the filmic vision rather than the other way around do you think
2: it depends on who's making the film right you know i mean look at the mess that's you know pink floyd the wall right i mean and and it's a mess worth seeing you know but, but it's a mess <laughs> because nobody knows. Or, you know, I start off the book talking about being 17 and going to see 200 motels, you know, the Frank Zappa <laughs> yes, film. Yes, that's right. A little tiny theater in a nowhere upstate New York town, and there's nobody there, and the few people who want get chased out in 15 minutes by <laughs> this thing, you know, and you look back and you go, well, you know, Frank Zappa knew a lot about music, but he really didn't know enough about making movies. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know there are frank zappa fans right now would think i've just committed the worst sin in the world but <laughs> you know that's my opinion no it's a terrible
4: film i mean it's absolutely Goshly. dreadful it's un- i'm virtually unwatchable but you know <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> listen go out there and buy rock on film the movies that rocked the big screen by fred goodman with a forward by sir michael Lindsay hogg rather than <laughs> sir dennis Eaton hogg it's a wonderful <laughs> celebration of the very best or some of the very very best music films from the last what, what is the earliest thing it girl can't help
2: it is that that's the, is that the yeah, first one yeah girl can't comment? help yeah, it can't 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 is the earliest it. and you, you uh, know uh, so, I'm some very, of the Alan freed films that are mentioned yeah
4: i'm very fond of the girl can't Girl can't help, help It. it is wonderful i'm mean, partly cuz little richard is electrifying in it i mean <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, it's just yeah. Yeah. If she walks by the
5: folks
1: help it, the girl can't help if it she wakes my, the it, the help it. The help it. She Listen, the mold. in an abrupt change of mood, we had no sooner finished recording the previous episode with Mr. Gary Kemp, also a wonderful episode for us. I really enjoyed it. And um, But I think like the next day we heard that Tom Verlaine had died, Tom Verlaine of television fame. So I think we'd like to just talk a little bit about that group and about about Mr. Verlaine, born Tom Miller in Delaware, I think. We've had on the homepage for the last, what, like 10 days or so, two free pieces, one from 76, Dave Schultz in Trouser Press talking to Verlaine and other members of television. And then Roy Trakin talking to Verlaine after television had broken up. They didn't last very long. So it's a New York rocker piece from from 78 we also on rucks back pages have a lot of other television stuff including the incredible nick kent review of Marquee moon that made me and thousands of other pale middle class boys rush <laughs> out and buy the damn record and you know uh, the, the, the review was absolutely justified i mean i think i still think it's one of the great rock records mark i mean i think yeah, you know, yeah we yeah. both saw them we both saw television didn't we at Well, hammersmith. I, well actually, I, I went into that gig as a massive television
4: fan having loved marky moon and i left a massive blondie fan who <laughs> yes, was a support band exactly who, frankly blew television off the stage they I really
1: mean, did they were fun weren't they and yeah well television you, they, were very dour they were always dour when well they, they, just, they
4: just stood there and played which you know in a big hall like was what hammersmith odeon just didn't come across at all and i'm not i'm in uh, as I confessed to Gary Kemp in the last podcast, I'm something of a deadhead. And television always weirdly reminded me more of Quicksilver and the Grateful Dead than all the punky thoughts. The vocals were punkish, but instrumentally, it was straight right. out of San Francisco. They were two guitar bands.
1: Yeah. Were two you, guitar bands. You know. Two amazing um, but, guitar players. But I really. mean,
4: you know, that's, that album plus the, the preceding single, Little Johnny Jewel, yeah. were just astonishing. There's, the following album was massively disappointing. Terrible.
2: Terrible, uh, and, really. and
4: in a way, that was it. I mean, you know, Valaine went on made made solo albums and so on and so forth, but it was a classic case of just everything that was great about what him Wait, was, that in, was in that one, one album. Yeah, Fred,
2: did well, you see them play? I I saw them play on one of their reunions. I, oh, actually, right, yeah, two yeah. of their reunion. I saw yeah. them twice on, on reunion, and and I have to say that, you know, they could they could bring it. I mean, they, they were not disappointing. Line, right you know that second band lineup was really outstanding and the two guitarists were wonderful i mean i you know i'm a two guitar nut you know i mean, <laughs> Friends, two guitars goodman you, you know it, it's just like uh, yeah but i do think that that was really the story you know mm. that cbgb's are not you know when, when you hear Marquis moon you know you're hearing you know the son of east east and west
1: Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, that, that's, it, that. It's a fabulous sounding record. It's interesting that after Verlaine's death, our friend Richard Williams, RBP contributor, et cetera, wrote a piece about when he went to New York um, as an island A&R man in 1974 with Brian Eno, and they recorded some demos with television, which Verlaine absolutely hated, hated, hated. <laughs> Hated Eno, what Eno was doing to them. And uh, it's an interesting piece to to, to read that Richard wrote in The Guardian last week. But it reminds me that when our RBP colleague, Paul Kelly, and myself were in LA on RBP business a few years ago, we went to... We went just to meet Andy Johns, who produced Marky Moon. He was mixing some kind of, it, 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 mixing a, like a Rage Against the Machine, like uh, DVD, the, the, the sound for this DVD. And we walked into this little studio in the valley in la and the the volume i mean it's like the whole building was shaking and and andy johns who was quite a character was just like rocking back and forth like pushing like levers up and down and and, and i remember thinking yeah my god you know one of the reasons the Marquee moon sounds so fabulous is because this guy had worked with like the rolling stones and led zeppelin not very punky predecessors but I mean, it, it doesn't sound really like... It just sounds like an inc- incredible rock record. It's not really a punk record, No, is it's it? certainly
4: not. No.
2: No, but the vocals It's got, it's got brittle vocals. Attitude, That's about yeah. it. The attitude.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah. You know, like the, vo- the vocals are out of the Velvets and the guitars are out of the West Coast. I just got to note that we just had the news that Bert Bacharach died.
1: Oh, you're joking! No, it's just oh it's just j-
4: it's just come through. So the question is, do we want to talk about that now?
1: Wow! Because oh I assume god. you're going to be changing the homepage. Oh my god, that's that's uh, it's. I'm just talking about Bacharach right like in the last couple of days to someone, and he um, was
4: 94. That's a pretty good age. Oh, yes,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I, I suppose I should say, you know, I'm. I'm thanks for mentioning that, but it's uh it's as a massive backrack fan and I did one phone interview with with him. He was so lovely. I think he was a, just a genius but i mean, I'd just like to invite Fred to you know you you know about Fred you're steeped in that 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 sort of back history backstory of the Brill building and everything i mean what 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 would you if pressed have to say about Burt backrack
2: you know the thing that always struck me about Burt backrack is you know his voicing choices. Are so unusual, uh, you, you know. I think Jim Webb owes everything, you know, to Bert mm-hmm. Backrack. There yeah. are a lot of guys that just, and and it's like growing up with it, you didn't really notice how unusual it was. Yeah, you know, if if you you know, you'd hear a record like "Do You Know the Way to San Jose?" Yeah, you know, it was just okay. This is what pop music is, and it's only later on when you hear something out of that period that you didn't know. I remember hearing. There was a Dion Warwick record. Are you there with another girl? Yeah, that is such an unusual arrangement. Yeah, You yeah. know that you just—it's like it's amazing that anybody would think this way for a pop record, yes. and that's what I'm struck. You know, the, the guys—it's it, got nothing to do with rock and roll, certainly. Sure. You know, but but it's like I can't place his voicings anywhere but him. There, it's like a signature.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was classically trained, of course, you know, when now, you read but, but interviews those, with you him. Know, those soft about,
2: trumpets, yeah. you know, where he picks his stops. I mean... Um, uh, also, know,
4: there's, there's, there's a complexity in what he writes, yeah. which is really subtle, but it's not standard pop music Songwriting. We posted the audio interview with, yeah. with Richard Carpenter. A Backrack disciple, yeah. And co wrote one of the big Carpenter's hits with Burt Backrack. And he talks about this very interestingly about how, you know, you listen to Burt Bachrach stuff and suddenly you think, hang on. What did he do there? What did he mm-hmm. do there? Mm-hmm. A lot of that going on. Yeah, I think it's, it's very like a unorthodox
2: of, things that you wouldn't expect to yeah. hear in pop records. And you don't notice them until, like I say, you hear a record that you haven't heard. And you go, Man, this guy is so far yeah. out in left field.
4: I mean, talk, talking about sort of the 60s, we're talking about Hard Day's Night. I and mean, One of the defining things for me was the English women who covered Bacharach songs. We didn't necessarily hear the Dionne Warwick. Versions, mm. but we heard Scylla Black's versions. We heard Dusty right. Springfield's versions, you know. And Scylla Black actually, Bert Backrack loved her her covers of his well, stuff. Alf- Herb- Alfie
3: is just yeah, phenomenal
1: it's Jasper, what were you about to say something about Bert?
3: I was just going to say that I think that the uniqueness of Backrack is like that. It is partly that classically trained side, but also he he was a fan of I think Count Basie, Duke Ellington. Sure, I think he he honed a craft based on a mixture of influences and that enabled him to go and do you know do what he did those really close harmonies and all of that kind of thing you know when if you're thinking about big band music there's a real tightness to things and there has to be a real tightness to things because it's such a big band and then when you apply that kind of precision as you were saying to pop you get something
4: different, yeah. Also, there's a, there's a harmonic complexity in there, which is yeah. which most pop listeners weren't weren't exposed to.
2: Well, you know, and you realize that you're listening to these records, and they have strong melodies and strong vocal performances, but really, it's the arrangements that are the stars yeah. of the recordings. Yeah, which is so unusual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
1: don't forget, he'd been Marlene Dietrich's musical director for a few that. years. Yeah. But bef- be- before <laughs> the sort of Burt Backrack and David yeah, yeah. era that we know, the, the, one of the stories I most love about Burt was, was about, you know, his muse Dionne Warwick. He wrote the song Promises, Promises, almost to sort of torture her because he wrote a song that where it's almost impossible to take a breath. Okay. Wow. And it was like, I defy you, Dion, to sing this song <laughs> and, 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 and without literally being able to just have to take tiny breaths in between the, you know, the, the phrasings. And if you listen to it, you, re- you really do think, how the hell would you sing this in one take and stay alive? <laughs> <laughs> but Dion was, of course, you know, was, was his great. Kind of muse and the yes. perfect voice because it wasn't it wasn't like a it wasn't like Aretha it was it no, was a cab, a sort of cabaretish voice yeah very yeah, unique yeah but that's not to say that there weren't countless other great singers who who did beautiful things. i mean, Jerry Butler's version. of Make it easy on yourself. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. It's the original version of always something there to remind me. Um. By I think is it is it Tommy Hunt before Sandy Shaw. That, that that's just divine as well. And I love the Carpenters' Close to You. Yeah, love the yeah. carbons is close to yeah. you. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, look. So this is um this is the first of the podcast to get news like that in the middle of in recording. The podcast, um, yeah. I, to me, he was just a a giant, sort of towering over over American pop, and um, it's very, very, uh, very, very sad news indeed. Even as, yeah. as as you say, he he had a very good innings if he got to ninety four. <laughs> <laughs>
0: promises, promises, I'm up.
1: So, given we've had to take that slight detour, do you want to scoot through some of some of the pieces? Well, just, just, a, just a couple of things yeah. from,
4: from the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, l- uh, last week, um, and it, this really ties in with the talking about movies, because it's Maureen Cleve meets Peter, Paul and Mary, The Evening Stand in 1963. And it's straight out of The Mighty Winds, the movie done by the Spinal Tap guys about folk and about how pompous these people are. You know, Paul says... Taller and Gentler said that the folk song had a real subject, not a placebo subject. By this he meant it was not sugarcoated pill rock and roll was. The lyrical and melodic content of those songs are the sugar-coating. The lyrics deal them as completely in self-pity. Rock and roll exists in only one level. I mean, I just l- love that. we got Paul Nelson's review of Beggar's Banquet. Now, there is a mythology that the great records were ha- were, were, were slagged off at the time. Largely not true. Not in this case. He says, it isn't the Stones' best album, it isn't a great album, and it doesn't mark any particular point at all in the short history of rock and roll. Sympathy for the Devil is more pretentious than most of the um, the Majesty's request, and the arrangement is awful. I I mean, it's gold dust for me. How
1: wrong can you be? How wrong can can you be? (laughs) Sorry, Uh, Paul, I'm a huge fan of Paul uh, Nelson. Give uh, it time, uh, Paul.
0: (laughs) Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste I've been around for
4: a long, long year Stole many a man's soul to A nod this week to the recent departed David Crosby into Johnny Black interviewed him and talking about being when he spent time in jail and he formed a band in jail. He says, there's a lot of musicians in jail, you know. The lead guitarist was exceptional. He's in there for murder. He'll never set foot outside again. Great guitar player poor guys never played in front of girls <laughs> <laughs> that's my lot <laughs> jasper two things to mention
3: first of which is a very sweet piece sophie haywood in the guardian as keen bow out in berlin i pray it's not for good sophie haywood kind of despite herself loves the band keen for for whatever obscure reason. Well, it, it's just a funny little piece we've we, we've all got a crust to bear you know <laughs> But uh, she tells a story of how one night when I had joined them on tour in Brazil, they agreed that I could have unprecedented access, so took me out drinking caipirinhas in some awful bar that played Beatles covers and then took me back to Tim Rice Oxley's room where they played the guitar all night. What songs did they sing? What late-night confessionals did they tell? I can't tell you. As being the consummate professional journalist that I am, I passed out on the bed snoring. <laughs> this is where I should have known better than to feel safe in a foreign bedroom with wealthy, famous men fresh from the stage, high on spirits, and a long way from their girlfriends back home. Yes, they did what only rock stars unleashed like a pack of wolves can do in these circumstances. They leant over my steam body and tied my shoelaces together. When I eventually <laughs> stood up, I fell straight over again. <laughs> it's just a funny piece. It just it just nice. tickled me, and I think it's you know it, it is nice when people write about things they love, even when they know they shouldn't love them.
4: That's great. <laughs>
3: Secondly, sing along with the common people, Lisa Verico in the Sunday Times, which I thought was interesting. It's twenty fifteen piece about. Working class performers, as gritty working class performers get eclipsed by the posh brigade, major labels thirst for the next oasis. And she speaks to a few people, including a duo from Peng comprising the fantastically named Richie Skint and Harvey Lee, who, who are, you know, working class lads. And Skint says, making music is expensive. Since I started working at 18, I've spent most of my money on instruments. There's been a fair few beers bought over the years, but otherwise it's all been sacrificed. No nice clothes, no holidays, no nights out, unless they're ridiculously cheap. We worked to pay for being in a band. It's not like the old days when you could survive by signing on. And I think that speaks to something that we've talked about before on the podcast, where it's an increasingly hostile environment yeah. for anyone that isn't backed by, mummy and daddy. you know, mummy and daddy to make music and to, or indeed any form of the arts. Although it's interesting that Nick Huggett, who's director of AR Island Records, who's interviewed for this piece as well, talks about how the dream now for, for working class kids is to be on reality TV as that's the like the pipeline instead of instead of pop music mm-hmm. or rock music and it's just you know it's, it's a kind of industry piece i just thought it was interesting sure. to to think about you know what is it about what has shifted in in the industry that makes it that much harder
1: to access great stuff thank you very much jasper that really does bring us to the end of the episode we will be back in a fortnight with ellen sander a pioneering 60s female critic for Saturday review and author of the 1973 book trips rock life in the 60s. So looking forward to that, please do check out rocks back pages, everything that's new 60 new pieces on the site this week. Find out if your library subscribes, if it doesn't uh, maybe suggest they take a trial. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Go out and buy Fred's book. I'll repeat it again. The title is Rock on Film, The Movies That Rock the Big Screen. It's done in association with with Turner Classic Movies, although in the spine it says Running Press. I don't know if that's uh, independent of TCM. Hasher, hashtag, Yeah. Anyway, it's a wonderful book, and there's wonderful films in there, which you should also go see. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Jasper. And above all, thanks, Fred. Bye. Thanks, Fred. Bye.
5: <laughs> Thank you.
3: That concludes episode 146 of the Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Fred Goodman. Rock on Film, the movies that rocked the big screen, is published by Running Press, and Why de Sella Matters is published by University of Texas Press. Both are available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Muris, and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.